For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. All right, so we've been in 2 Corinthians. This is a, a letter from the Apostle Paul to this church in the city of Corinth. 2,000 years ago this was written. Still relevant today. What tonight's passage starts us off on is a, a five-chapter tangent that the Apostle Paul takes where he conjures up some of the most vivid images in the Bible that we have to describe what authentic Christianity really looks like. He's describing his own life serving God, and and he's going to give us some different pictures. And tonight, the picture that he gives us that we're going to spend the whole evening on is the picture of a victory parade. And so let's just read our whole passage tonight. And we'll spend the rest of the evening working our way through it. He says, But thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ, and reveals through us the aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, an aroma from death to death. To the other, an aroma from life to life. All right, so... What's he talking about here? What he's talking about here, we see in verse 14, it says he always leads us in his triumph in Christ. What he's referring to is the Roman triumphal procession. Uh, this was a victory parade. You know, this, was, this celebrated the greatest victories by the greatest generals. You see, when the Roman army wasn't out putting down riots and revolts throughout the Roman Empire, they would go off to the edges of the Roman Empire and they would fight battles with the barbarians to take more territory and to expand the territory of Rome. And um, they would go off, and sometimes they, would, um, they might be gone for a couple of years. And back then, you didn't have live video feeds with updates from the front line. They, the army would leave, and you didn't know what was happening. Occasionally, a messenger might come back, but um, it was hard to get information, and so they, they'd tell the story when the soldiers came back. And if the victory was big enough, if it qualified... And the Senate had to approve whether or not this, this qualified for a triumphal procession. They would throw one of these huge victory parades. Kenneth Chafin gives a little more detail. He says, for a general to qualify for a triumph celebration, he had to have been a field commander in a victorious campaign where at least 5,000 of the enemy had fallen in battle. In fact, the Roman Senate had to pass a law that said generals were not allowed to lie about how many they killed because they really wanted one of these victories. This is sort of like, you know, the the championship or whatever, the championship trophy. They really wanted one of these celebrations. It couldn't be just any battle. It had to be a battle where conquered territory was occupied and stabilized to become part of the vast Roman Empire. And the story of the conquest was told in the order of the procession. First, the senators and state officials, and then the spoils taken from the conquered lands. Yeah, they would bring back a lot of money and a lot of other stuff. They would raid and loot whatever they possibly could and bring all of the booty back to Rome. There were pictures of the conquered lands, so they know what it looked like there, followed by a white bull, which would afterward be sacrificed. The captives followed, who later would be put in prison or usually executed at the end of the parade. So they were not enjoying the parade. 
There were also musicians and priests with their incense. Remember that incense. We'll come back to that later. That becomes an important part of the picture that Paul is painting. The priests would come through and they would be carrying their, their incense and burning. And, and every temple in Rome would be burning the incense. The whole city would have a certain fragrance to it that was unmistakably the fragrance of the victory parade. And finally, the conquering general riding a chariot pulled by four horses, followed by his family, and then the conquering soldiers. The streets were lined with excited, shouting people. Anyone who chanced to witness such a grand spectacle would never forget it. There were certainly people in the city of Corinth. It was a, very, it was a crossroads for travel in the Roman Empire. Soldiers would retire there sometimes. Uh, people had seen these victory parades before. And Paul is citing these as a picture of what it means to follow God. You know, this, this triumphal procession had a couple of purposes. It told the story of the battle. You saw that there. But it also commemorated the battle for future generations. They would, um, part of the setup for the parade is they would set up an arch, a triumphal arch. Or, uh, and, and you've probably, probably seen or heard of some of these. One of the most famous ones is in Paris, France, the Arc de Triomphe. Of course, this was, by, this was commissioned by Napoleon in around 1800. So this was long after the Roman Empire had fallen. But it was, he did this as a tribute to these Roman triumphal processions from of old. What they would do is they would carve pictures and, and um, loot from... The victory, they would carve it right into the arch. And then the parade would march through these arches. One of the most famous in the city of Rome is uh, the Arch of Titus, which is very close to the Colosseum. This was the arch that was built after the victory over Jerusalem. When they destroyed the Jerusalem temple and they brought back tons of loot back to Rome, that the, the loot from the temple was what funded the building of the Colosseum. But if you look on the wall, the, the wall closest to us, you can see... The pictures they carved of their victory. There, can you, do you notice anything from the Jerusalem temple? Like the menorah carved right there, right there in downtown, the old Roman forum there. Uh, you can see the horns from the, uh, the trumpets from the temple. You can see the, the captives in the front there. They've kind of got their, their arms bound behind them. You see the victorious soldiers here. Um, yeah, so they would march. To, so basically these arches, they were all over the city of Rome. Whenever they'd have one of these, they would, they would build a new one. They would march the, uh, the whole procession through it. And then anybody in future generations could come back and they could see, they could remember these battles. Well, these triumphal processions, they've been um, copied in various forms uh, through movies. And so I've got just a, a short video here with a little montage, uh, some from Gladiator and another triumphal procession from the old HBO series, Rome. So we'll just uh, see the epicness of this. <clears throat>
pretty cool to see one of those. Except for that prisoner they were loading up. Not a real good day for him. So this is the picture Paul is painting here, this Roman triumphal procession. What does it mean? Well, let's take a look at what he says. One aspect of this metaphor that's pretty easy to identify is that Jesus Christ is the victorious general. He says, thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. And so he's leading us in this triumph, this triumphal victory procession. What this doesn't mean, this is not authorizing the church to kill people, which is how this was interpreted for about a thousand years. Uh, like some kind of military victory that God is granting the church, and so many people were killed in the name of Christ. And that's, that's as far as you can get from what the, the teaching of the New Testament. It's embarrassing. It's also not saying that Christians will never get hurt or sick or suffer. Paul is writing 2 Corinthians in the midst of tremendous suffering. You know, he's, he's like, I thought we were going to die. That's how bad things got. And so some take it this way, like we'll always have victory over sickness. I mean, eventually in heaven we'll have victory over sickness, but in this life, God has not granted that. He might, he might heal sometimes, but there's no, there's no promise here that, and this is just how it's taken by some Christians, unfortunately. Really a misinterpretation of this passage. No, the triumph of Christ is the cross of Christ. Colossians 2 spells this out. You see, there's our, there's our conquering general, our victorious general, Jesus Christ, on his cross. Colossians says, when you were dead in your sins, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all of our sins, having canceled our certificate of debt, which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it away, nailing it to the cross. You can see there on the cross. This was the certificate of debt. Yeah, when criminals would be given the capital punishment sentence, their crime, their main crime would be written on this placard. It would be hung around the criminal's neck. And they would have to wear that as they marched to the site of their crucifixion. And then what Rome would do is they would take that and they would nail it to the cross. And the reason they did this, the reason they crucified people publicly, because the point was don't mess with Rome. And then if people were like, I wonder what I particularly should not do lest I get this punishment, you could look up and see exactly what the person did. And, of course, Jesus Christ, since he committed no actual, not, not only did he commit no crime, he committed no sin ever. What was written on his placard? The king of the Jews. Yes, he was the king promised in the Old Testament, but he was also the one who would suffer for the sins of the world, and those, those two figures are the same person. And it says, as a result of what he did on the cross, because his certificate of debt was basically empty, what he says is, ours can be nailed right over his. And mine's pretty long. It would take a, a couple of semi-trucks to carry my certificate of debt. But that, he says, can be nailed to the cross. And so Jesus Christ can die in our place. He can forgive our sins and cancel that certificate of debt. It says we were dead. We were spiritually dead. And yet God made us alive. And so when our sins are forgiven, we become into a new relationship with God. We're given spiritual life. A, a complete transformation. We become new creations in Christ that we'll study in a couple of weeks in 2 Corinthians 5. He goes on and he says, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them through the cross. The same verb that's used here in, in 2 Corinthians 2. He triumphed over them through the cross. And so this was his great triumph. This was all of the accusations 
that God's enemy had made over the years. God doesn't love you. Why does everybody always have to follow God? You'd be better off turning against him. On the cross, Jesus Christ said, here is the love of God. That God so loved the world that he sent his only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but would have everlasting life. And so here he triumphs over the lies about God. He triumphs over sin and he paves the way for eternal life. That is what our general did. Yes, the cross was the decisive victory. And it's the starting point for every other challenge in the Christian's life. We'd start, we do not fight for victory. We start from a point of victory. D-Day has already happened. It was successful. We know the outcome of history. We know where we will spend eternity. And so it's a victorious place, starting from the place where Jesus Christ gave us perfect righteousness at the cross. And so Paul says, we've got to remember this is our starting point if we're going to serve God, if we're going to do anything for him. This is how we need to view ourselves and him. We're, we're part of the victory parade, okay? Let's look at another aspect of, of this. It says, he reveals through us the aroma of the knowledge of him in every place, for we are a fragrance of Christ to God. And so the burning incense, remember the incense that was part of these processions? The burning incense, well, that's the Christian's. That's sort of interesting. So we're the smell in this victory parade. You see, people can't see Jesus directly anymore. You know, when he was here on earth walking around, people could see him. He could, he, they could see what God was like, the Father. But when he left, he said, you guys are going to have to be my witnesses. And so what God has done is he's released us, Christians, into the world. And he makes us give off a certain odor, a spiritual odor. All right, some of you guys are like, man, I've had an odor my whole life. I had no idea this was from the Lord. <laughs> no, that, that's an odor that's not pleasing to God or women. <laughs> the odor he gives, it's a spiritual aroma. The aroma of the knowledge of him. It's, there's something about us that shows people what God is like. And there's the truth that we carry, but there's also something subjective, a, a difference that sometimes people can't quite even put their finger on, but they know that it's there. And Paul says, that's what we get to be. That aroma reveals the knowledge of God. It describes what God is like in a way that people can see, that people can sense. And what he says here is that some people like the smell and some people don't. Think about it. The enemies of Rome and the citizens of Rome are smelling the same thing. The citizens of Rome, when that parade would come through, they knew it was coming. They knew the arch was ready. Everything was set for the huge festival. A festival that might only happen once every couple of years. And they would come through and that whole city would smell of the aroma of victory and they would say, yes, the soldiers have returned. We are victorious. That smell would be linked in their minds with this experience. The prisoners, on the other hand, they would smell the same smell. And they were marched all the way back from the outer reaches of the Roman Empire just to be displayed and executed. 
whatever sort of delusions they might have that uh, maybe this is not going to end in my death, when they smelled that smell, when they were part of that parade, they knew this is the end. That smell was the smell of imminent doom. That smell reminded them that very soon my life is over, and this is the end, and I'm on the wrong side. That's what it reminded them of. That's what the smell communicated to them. And so it's the same smell, and it communicates two totally different things to two totally different people, depending on your perspective. Smells can be this way. I'll give you a couple examples. Here's one. Let's imagine a smoker filled with a couple hundred pounds of perfectly seasoned pork flesh. Smoked at 225 for about 20 straight hours, properly rotated, turned. They got a thick bark on there. Oh. You know, any normal person, they would show up and they'd be like, oh, that smells amazing. Thank you, Lord. Am I in heaven, Lord? It's the smell of victory. (laughs) On the other hand, you know, your vegan friend comes along. (laughs) And they're like, don't you know I'm a vegan? Have I ever mentioned that to you? (laughs) That smell is making me sick. Don't you have any soy sticks? Or or tofu tots? It's the smell of death to them. It's gross. Because we're coming from two totally different perspectives. How about a different modern-day victory parade? Anybody remember this? A little over two years ago, this was the uh, victory parade after the Cavs won the NBA title, after being down three games to one. How many people here went to this parade, by the way? Yeah, several people here in this room. 1.3 million people apparently crammed into the streets of Cleveland for this victory celebration. You know, this is like a a once-in-a-lifetime event here. And um, people were so happy. But, I mean, imagine imagine you're a Golden State Warriors fan living in Cleveland. You're going to even go to this parade here? No, this this is the sound, the smell of agony. This is, you're like, how do we lose this series? I can't believe this. Same parade. Two very different feelings evoked by this parade. And just so you understand how the other side would feel, this parade just two years later, oh, oh, it's so painful. I hate this picture. (laughs) Oh, is there anything more disgusting (laughs) than this picture right here? Oh. Again, it's... You could have the same two people here at this parade and they would have exactly the opposite reaction. The one it would be nauseating to the other it would be joyous, the sound of victory.
And he says, we're a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved. So the ones who like the smell are those who are being saved. But it says we're also a smell among those who are perishing. The ones who don't like the smell are those who are perishing. To the one, an aroma from death to death smells like death. To the other, an aroma from life to life smells like life. And so we've got these two different types of people, two different types of smell. And so what smells so bad to the one group? Well, one thing that might smell pretty bad is the self-righteousness and hypocrisy and selfishness of Christians. And I got to tell you, I think that stinks as well, and so does God. In fact, if you look at Jesus, nothing made him angrier than self-righteous, hypocritical Christians. And I'm embarrassed about how many Christians have paraded around in this kind of a parade, a self-righteous parade, a hypocrisy parade. And um, I just want to apologize if you've been turned off to Christianity by people like this, but that's not what God wants. This is not the kind of smell that he's talking about. We need to be very diligent not to add our own stench into this mix. And hypocrisy be a great way to add a smell, a foreign smell, not the kind of smell that God... God says, I want you to emit a smell of the knowledge of me, the aroma of the knowledge of me. And that, is, that doesn't communicate at all what God is like. It communicates the opposite. So uh, Christians in politics, I feel like, is one area that Christians really get super obnoxious arguing, just alienating people, saying this, if, you have to vote, if you're a Christian, you have to vote for this candidate, and if you don't, then you're not a Christian, and just sort of leveraging the Bible for their own political agenda just drives people further away. That's not good. That's stinky. Um, what about Christians that are horrible neighbors and employees? Our neighbors should be so glad that we live in that neighborhood. They should be so glad we live next door to them. Our coworkers and bosses should be so glad that you work at this company. And uh, some Christians think it's like unspiritual to be a good neighbor or a good worker. Uh, it's actually the opposite. We're, we're, we're there. We are the picture of Christ. And we do not want to communicate a gross picture of Christ to people. One that turns people away from God. We're under scrutiny here. As Christians, our church in particular, we're under scrutiny. And we need to be careful about the sort of image that we project. We need to reflect Christ to people and not something foreign, a foreign stench. What about Christians that just complain? We need to replace our complaining with gratitude. Did you know complaining is completely out of bounds for the Christian? Philippians 2, do all things without grumbling. If you're grumbling and you're a Christian, there's something wrong. If you're ungrateful and a Christian, there's something wrong. You're not, you're not in touch with the knowledge of God, all right? You're not in touch with everything God has given you and how good you've got it and the victory that Christ has already achieved and the, the destination you're heading to, which is eternal life with God. It'll be here very soon. An ungrateful Christian is a contradiction in terms. We have to get into gratitude Otherwise, we will not be able to partake of the sort of thing that Paul is talking about here. We won't give off the right smell. Don't add your own stench. I will tell you what does smell bad that we just can't help. We agree with Jesus who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
a very exclusive claim. And some people hear that and they're like, oh, well, that's offensive to me. And I can't believe how exclusive you are. And it's like, look, it's not me, it's Jesus. And I'm just agreeing with him. The exclusivity of Christ is, can make people pretty angry. It doesn't smell too good. Scripture says, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And you're like, wait, you're saying because I have, have messed up in my life ever that I'm going to hell and that Jesus Christ is the only one who can forgive me? I'm offended by that. I'm a good person. I'm better than that person over there. I'm better than a lot of people. It's offensive. It doesn't smell good. There's nothing we can do about that. Your good works and religious rituals aren't enough to get you into heaven. You are saved by grace. It's a free gift from God. And this, is, this smells pretty bad to some people. They're like, I have done so many religious rituals in my life. I have not missed a single Sunday. I've done this, this, and this. And I can't believe you're saying that's not good enough. You get an angry response from people sometimes. I've done this, I've done this, I've done this, I've been a good person, I've done all these good works, I recycle, I drive a Prius, I volunteer, I always put the cart back in the thingy at the grocery store, okay? I am a good person, and I'm offended that you would suggest anything else. We say, life is ultimately meaningless without God. Oh. William Lane Craig, I think, says it pretty well in this quote. He says, if each individual person passes out of existence when he dies, then what ultimate meaning can be given to his life? Does it really matter whether he ever existed at all? His life may be important relative to certain other events, but what's the ultimate significance of any of those events? If all the events are meaningless then what can be the ultimate meaning of influencing any of those? Ultimately, it makes no difference. Mankind is thus no more significant than a swarm of mosquitoes or a barnyard of pigs, for their end is all the same. The same blind cosmic process that coughed them up in the first place <coughs> will eventually swallow them all again. What about the contributions of the scientists to the advance of human knowledge, the researches of the doctor to alleviate pain and suffering? All these come to nothing. In the end, they don't make a bit of difference. Not one bit. Each person's life is therefore without ultimate significance, and because our lives are ultimately meaningless, the activities we fill our lives with are also meaningless. The long hours spent in the study at the university, our jobs, our interests, our friendships, all these are, in the final analysis, utterly meaningless. And he concludes, this is the horror of modern man. Because he ends in nothing, he is nothing. It's hard to get around that conclusion. And the Christian has the freedom to say the truth. And for some people, that's too depressing, that's too negative. It's just true. It's reality in a world without God, in the world of naturalism. Christians can follow the evidence of science where it really leads. We're not, we don't have to come into science 
predisposed to, to have already concluded there is no such thing as the supernatural. It all must be natural. Nothing can be outside the system. And so we can say, look, if space and time started at the Big Bang, of a proposition which is pretty much agreed upon by the general consensus of science, then we can say, how did space and time begin? How do we have an effect without a cause? We've got to have an uncaused cause. There's got to be something, someone outside the system that could set all this in motion. Quentin Smith, atheist professor, though, says the most reasonable belief is that we came from nothing, by nothing, and for nothing. That's the most reasonable belief? Or we can say, why does our universe seem so precisely calibrated to support life? There, there are quite a few constants, several dozen, that have to be just so in order for a world to be able to exist that permits life. And we could say, doesn't it seem like this was set up this way by some grand designer who wanted to have a space for life to exist? Stephen Hawking agrees. He says, most sets of values would give rise to universes that although they might be very beautiful, would contain no one able to wonder at that beauty. We can, say, we, we can look at this and we can just say yes. This is not keeping science from happening. Christians throughout the centuries have been right on the front edge of science, okay? But we can follow the evidence where it really leads. We could just tell it like it is. Christians find real joy. So we don't have to turn to empty alternatives. Some of us may be getting flack for this right now. A friend of mine... Um, who came to, Christ, came to Christ about a year ago, I was talking to him recently about how he became a Christian, and he used to be into, you know, a lot of the party stuff, but he was so unhappy. And when he became a Christian, he had this joy, this incredible joy in his life. He's like, I'm so happy now. The other stuff wasn't working anyway. I don't need it. I don't want it. But then he'll hang out with his old friends still, and they're still into a lot of that stuff, and they, they're giving him a hard time because he's not. Or they're sort of being like, well, you're just too self-righteous. Maybe that's why. And he's like, no, I'm happy. It's, that's not making you happy. It wasn't me either. I found something so much better. And so he's there. He's loving them, but he's not doing a lot of the same things that they're doing, and so it's creating some friction. And I think, I think that's an okay kind of friction. We're, on the one hand, people feel loved, but they know we're different and we're happy. And we don't need the things that they need. First Peter comments on this. He says, The time already passed is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality. And they're surprised that you don't run with them in the same excesses, and they malign you. They say bad things about you, mean things to you. You know, if, 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 you're, if you're not happy and you see somebody that's happy, sometimes that can, you know, it's like if you, you just got dumped and you see like a happy couple together and you're like, ugh. It can be sort of that effect. A hostile response could mean you smell just right. So don't shrink back or shy away from bold love. Also, Christians prioritize people and live by the law of love. Jesus says, people will know about, you're my disciples by the way you love one another. And this is part of the aroma as people come into a home church and they just sense something is different here. 
these people are so happy. What? This is not like my other, this is how I felt the first time I walked into home church. I was like, whoa, something's different. And it was the aroma of Christ. So what smells so good to the other crew? We see what smells so bad to one, the one type of person. What smells so good? Well, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And some people are like, so there is a way. Tell me more. And they take a step toward Christ, toward the good news. Romans says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And they're like, wait, God is giving out eternal life? I know I'm not good enough. Give me this free gift. Tell me more. Jesus, he hung out with the sinners. And the, the self-righteous were like, oh, you hang out with sinners? And he's like, look, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I came not to call people who think they're righteous, but people who know they're sinners. Having, people have the humility to admit they're wrong and they need a handout. Your good works and religious rituals aren't enough to get you into heaven. And they're like, I knew that this was not enough. Why would God want me to do some sort of spiritual hokey pokey and that's what's going to buy my eternal life? I know I haven't done it enough, sincere enough, more, as frequently as possible, and I'm living in fear of my own death because I don't know where this is going to head. Life is ultimately meaningless without God. They're like, I know, I'm so depressed, I can barely get out of bed. I, have, I realize I have nothing to live for. I'm trying to live for pleasure. That's no good. I need something more. And you, if you have answers, tell me. I want those answers. We can follow the evidence of science where it really leads. And they're like, well, great example, Jeffrey Schwartz. J.P. Moreland told us this story when he was here teaching one of the seminary courses that we offer. And Moreland, he's a world-renowned Christian thinker, they set him up for a debate with Schwartz. And Moreland was supposed to argue that there's a difference between the brain and the mind, that the mind is non-physical, and it's, it sits, it's spiritual, it sits behind the brain. Schwartz was supposed to argue the mind and the brain are the same thing. He was a Buddhist, a Jew, um, not a Christian. Moreland said, he's like, I got halfway through this debate and I realized he agreed with me. And so it, it turned from a debate into a discussion <laughs> about how the mind and the brain are different. This guy ends up becoming a Christian. He's a, he's a research scientist at UCLA, a, a real pioneer in uh, neuroplasticity. Dude's a Christian now. We can follow the evidence where it really leads. Christians find real joy, so we don't have to turn to empty alternatives. People see the joy, and they want the joy. They prioritize people and live by the law of love. We have relationships that work. We put first things first. And that is so attractive to some people. And that's the aroma that God wants us to emanate. He wants to do that through us. I brought a video testimony from a friend of mine. Her name's Mary Lynn Musgrove. She passed away a little less than a year ago at age 71. Uh, Mary Lynn was a woman who had a very successful life and marriage and family. And when she was in her early 50s, she, um, she just realized this is not enough. And uh, she started having some conversations with a very thoughtful Christian who invited her out. 
And she tells her story about how she came to Christ. All I can tell you is what happened to me. I found it was, it was a process. It began with my husband and me. When we were 57 years old, we were still agnostic. Maybe there's a God, maybe there's not a God. That's unknowable. But in spite of that, we had everything. We had a great marriage. We had these adorable sons. We had jobs that we loved. We had a home. We had enough money. All the things that anybody could ever want. But I now know that the, the scientist Pascal said, there is a God-shaped void in everyone that can only be filled by God. And Sam and I think we're exhibit A of that because we had everything that life has to offer. And in the midst of all that, we found ourselves asking, is this all there is? Mary Lynn was in her 50s when um, she was working at, as a professional counselor in Columbus. She also consulted for corporations and businesses. She was working at Evan Williams' company, and um, she was talking about the need for everybody in their job to be creative and have a creative outlet. Evan asked her if she knew where that came from, and she said she didn't, but it was universal, that everybody had a need to be creative. So Evan asked her if she would like to come and hear a biblical perspective on where the need to be creative came from. I think the only reason that I agreed to go, because who likes church, <laughs> was because he told me he never had ever wanted to be a born-again Christian. And I could really relate to that. <laughs> and so we went to visit his church. And one of the first people I met at his church was a, a woman by the name of Linda Jones. And she was so radiant. She was so joyful that I remember going home and saying to Sam, I don't know what she has, but I want it. There's something odd about those Christians. And so we went back to visit again, and one particular couple, Rosie and Wayne Talarzik, came up to us at the end of the teaching and just visited. And they, they were just amazing. There was something about them. They didn't talk to us about religion. They just accepted our poor agnostic selves as we were. And yet they had that same kind of radiance that we'd seen on Linda Jones. And Sam said, they know something we don't know. And we have to go to that church because we have to find out what it is. Hmm. Once we're teachable, we can take on the hard questions. Like this Jesus guy. There's a lot of noise about this Jesus guy. And I didn't, I was, 
was too sophisticated for him. <laughs> and who wanted to go study this? The Bible was just all myths and legends, didn't you know? <laughs> and so this noise around the name of Jesus was really hard to grapple with. And so the day came when Rosie and Wayne explained to us that Jesus is God's demonstration of his willingness to forgive us. And suddenly we, we, saw, we saw ourselves the way God sees us. We saw our selfishness and we saw our thoughtlessness and we saw our sinfulness and we realized that we needed to be forgiven. And so Rosie and Wayne helped us kind of come to the foot of the cross and ask for forgiveness. And it was, it was the defining moment of our lives. <laughs> we count our lives as before that moment and after that moment because nothing has ever been the same since that moment. Just wanted to point out a couple of things from her testimony that I thought were super cool and relevant for this, what we're talking about here. She said, we had everything, all the things that anybody could ever want, and in the midst of all that, we found ourselves asking, is this all there is? This is all the world can offer. A fleeting, a fleeting satisfaction that leaves a God-shaped hole. People need Christ. You need Christ. Rosie said, Evan asked her if she'd like to come and hear a biblical perspective on where the need to be creative came from. This was not an obnoxious Christian. This was a thoughtful Christian engaging this person where they were at in a very friendly way, but also asking a deep question. Not condemning, just inviting. Would you like to come and see? Rosie said, the, or, um, uh, Mary Lynn said the first person she met says she was so radiant. She was so joyful. I remember going home and saying to Sam, I don't know what she has, but I want it. There's something odd about those Christians. And that is what this passage is speaking to, the aroma of Christ. Her husband went back with her. He saw it too. He said, they know something we don't know, and we have to go to that church because we have to find out what it is. That is what Paul is talking about here. This is the aroma that comes from the victory parade. And finally, she says, they helped us come to the foot of the cross and ask for forgiveness. And it was the defining moment of our lives. We count our lives as before that moment and after that moment because nothing has ever been the same since that moment. There's a lot of people in this room that could give you that same testimony. That's how I feel as well. Maybe that moment for you can be tonight. Maybe it's time to finally come to the foot of the cross and receive the thing 
that you've been sensing. The victorious general is reaching his, his hand out. He's inviting you into the winner's circle. Will you take him up on his free gift? All right, let's pray. Lord, I, I'm just so thankful that you have already won the victory. It wasn't something you expected us to do, but you came and you did it yourself. And that victory is final. It is finished, and nothing can take away from your finished work. And you give that to us as a free gift. I'm thankful for the deep changes you make in our lives, Lord. You give us a joy that is real. You give us relationships that are real, Lord. You give us peace. Peace with you, first and foremost. And I, I pray, God, that, that we would be a light to a dark world. I pray that we would be a place that people can come, that they're drawn closer to you by what they see in our lives, what they see in our fellowship. Um, and and I, I just pray for anybody here who, who doesn't have a relationship with you, that they would enter into that, that life-defining, life-changing moment that Mary Lynn described, and that they would experience for themselves personally what it means that after that point nothing was ever the same. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.